Welcome to the Prenda Podcast. I'm Kelly Smith, and I'm looking for the best new ideas in education. I'll be talking to all sorts of people about new types of schools, reinventing education, and helping kids love learning. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, welcome back to the Prenda Podcast. This is Kelly Smith, and I'm talking via webcam with Karen Arnold. She's a professor at Boston College, and she's done a really interesting work that caught my eye uh, in the last several months about uh, tracking valedictorians of high schools and salutatorians, I believe, and following them through their life. Um, well, I'll let her talk about the research, but Karen, thank you for, for joining the program. Uh, you're welcome. Nice to be here. Appreciate you. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, just your your overall kind of backstory? This is, an, as we've talked about, an education podcast, and we're looking at new ideas in education, really trying to rethink. I want to get to your your specific research study and, and others that you think are relevant in a minute, but it'd be helpful to just kind of hear from you. Uh, I guess one question, were, were you the valedictorian of your school? I was not the valedictorian. <laughs> um, I was a good student, but I wasn't at the very top of my class. Um, and it, as a matter of fact, I trained as a musician and went to conservatory. So academics weren't at the top of my agenda and it, surprises me that I ended up not going into music and actually I'm a scholar. Right. <laughs> but I'm very interested in talent development and how people um, kind of choose what they're going to do. If they've got multiple talents, how they choose among them. Not that I have so many, but by definition, valedictorians need to be good at a lot of things. Right. Um, so it did resonate. I, I've been talking to lots of people about your study and tracking these valedictorians through life. And as listeners will soon find out, it's not an overwhelming uh, success, right? Like graduating first in your class in, in high school does not guarantee you a path to, you know, changing the world and conquering everything. Um, I was the salutatorian of my class. Uh, so I'll just, I'll say that right off the bat. And uh, as I've shared this story, people love to poke back immediately. People that knew me in high school, you know, hey, wait, isn't this saying... Anyway, it's a, it's, <laughs> I, I think it's funny, and I think it's actually fascinating. Um, I attribute a lot of the really interesting things that I've been able to do in my life to things that happened outside of the classroom and, and not specifically tied to school. So I resonated with it in that uh, regard immediately. So as people know, we always have a question on this podcast. And for this one, I wanted to ask the question, does school prepare people to succeed in life? So Karen, as we talk about your research and implications of it, uh, but even, you know, beyond that, let's explore that question. Are we, are we preparing people for life success? I think there's a lot of talk about, you know, mastering the, the test for this year. There's talk about graduating from high school, so meeting some set of requirements. There's even talk in some of the more progressive educators about getting people into college and even through college in six years. So you have some of these metrics that we're tracking. You're looking well beyond that in your research, from what I understand. And, and I want to get into that as we kind of talk about it. So maybe with that as an, as an intro, can you kind of tee up and explain what you did? I think your, your research is really fascinating. So your question, do, does school prepare for life? I went one step back and said, what does it mean to be great at school? Okay. So if you're the top person, what is it that you're good at? And does being great at school mean anything beyond school itself? 
And the answer to that question then would lead to your question, which is, are we doing the right things in school to prepare people for life? So people in education study failure a lot, why people don't succeed, why they drop out of high school, why they don't start or don't finish college. So uh, along with Professor Terry Denny, at the University of Illinois, we set out to do the opposite, to look at success. What can we learn from people who are successful? And it was sort of surprising to us that no one had ever studied high school valedictorians. Interesting. So we set out to do that. And we did it in one state in Illinois, um, but we studied all sorts of different valedictorians and we have salutatorians, some salutatorians in the um, study as well. So um, they come from all sorts of different high schools, big, fancy, really super competitive Chicago suburban schools, little farming communities where there are 32 people in the graduating class and eight of them are related and 20 of them have been together since kindergarten. Right. Uh, mid-sized city, rural, inner city areas. One of our valedictory addresses was delivered in Spanish. Uh, private schools, independent and parochial. So within one state, just about every circumstance in which you can be the top of the class. And we defined valedictorian as the person with the best grades. So it wasn't a popularity contest or somebody who competes to give the speech. Okay. Um, So really the best grade earner. And then uh, we ended up with 81 students And we interviewed them every year um, for the first five or so years, and then um, several times after that, but not yearly. Um, Surveys, all sorts of stuff. We know all sorts of people things about these valedictorians. And Karen, what time period? So this would be five years ago that they were the graduating valedictorian, roughly? No, and that's interesting that the um, media didn't pick up on this. This is 81 studies, 81 students from the high school class of 1981. Ah, okay. So I am the world's foremost and only expert on high school valedictorians because I'm the only one who has done such a study, but it's not a recent cohort. Interesting. So huge, huge question about whether what I found would hold for today's high school valedictorians. Right. Very interesting. Particularly because there's been a national movement to do away with rankings in high school. You'd have to interview 17 kids per high school. Well, we had, they were, (laughs) we had uh, valedictorians and salutatorians, um, but 81, we, we, they were at like 75 high schools. Or something. Oh, I mean, today they have these, these massive ties, right? Isn't that what you're talking about? They're, they're saying, maybe we don't have anyone be the valedictorian. And if we right. do, we've got a tie, a 20-way tie between all the kids that... Right. Well, that's one of the areas of controversy is, wait, we've got a bunch of students with grade inflation or just more great students who have perfect grade point averages, for instance. Okay. Then there's the whole controversy of weighting grades. I got straight A's, but I only have a 4.0. Well, I have a 5.0 because (laughs) I have honors biology and AP chemistry. Right. Um, And then the third issue which is a real one, and maybe we'll get into it a little bit, 
is um, that it puts too much pressure and makes things too competitive. So it's not a good thing to do. Got it. Okay. And that last one, I don't, I've written that I think we should recognize a valedictorian or at least have a meaningful uh, recognition for top academic performance. The day we say, you know what? You've always wanted to play football. Go out there and be the quarterback. Right. Is the day we should say, no, we're not going to rank people because it's just too much pressure. Right. If anything, I think we need to make more high school honors that really recognize what we say high school is really about. Right. Not take away the only one that students really take seriously. Interesting. Okay. Well, this is, these are obviously all discussions that we need to get into, but let, let me, I interrupted. You were saying you have, you found right. 81 so, students so in 1981. So we talked to all these people, um, got to know them really, really, really well. And we found out what happened to them. We followed them for 15 years. Okay. And the first thing that we found out is that some of the stereotypes about valedictorians are not true. Interesting. And one of it, one of those stereotypes, it seems to me, is that they're just grinds. They're grinds? They, Explain. Grinds. All they do is study. Yes. Um, that's not true. Okay. Or that they're socially inept or just school's their thing and they're in this narrow little box. Okay. And we found that's not true at all. They were exceptionally well-rounded. They wrote for the school newspaper. They played sports. They were in music and drama. They were active in their church groups. They really, valedictorians are well-rounded, salt-of-the-earth kind of people. Right. They tend quite not the opposite of socially inept. They tend to be quite interpersonally good. And when you think about it, that relates to the fact that they were good across um, all disciplines, good enough to get A's, right? And that they were they liked high school and felt comfortable there, and they got along well with, and in many cases identified with their teachers, right? So <laughs> these were people who. Who in the world could be as interested in all your classes as all the others? But they made sure, in the words of one one of my valedictorians, to make the first perfect angel food cake in home ec, as well as to figure out differential equations in calculus. This is so interesting to hear you say this, because I've, I've analyzed my own high school experience a lot. I got uh, straight A's also, and with a lot of weighted classes on that topic. Um, I Not as many weighted classes as the number one valedictorian, he got, he had one extra class because he had gone to a different school that had allowed him to take a, a math class early. I mean, that, that's what it came down to, right? Um, I got 91% as my highest grade. So I got n- between 89.6 and 91% in every single class. And basically that to me was, it was this, this game I played of, I mean, I think you're implying, right? That you don't need to follow your passion. You don't need to dive into something and be, be great at it. You have a system. You have a teacher that you need to like be friends with and get to know and understand what they want. You need to politely sort of learn the system and work the system. I mean, I wasn't a bad kid at all or a smart aleck, but you hear me say this and it sounds kind of cynical, right? Like I, I never got above a 91%, which meant that I never pushed myself to be great at any of those, those subjects that I got A's in. 
kind of an interesting. Well, I think you kind of got it. So we would, ask, we would ask the valedictorians, so what does it mean to be valedictorian? And over and over again, they said, it means I'm good in school. Interesting. Um, school smart was another. Um, they understood how to use their time, how to prepare for a test, what was likely to be on the test. They showed up. They did what they were supposed to do. They had a, a they did enjoy learning. It wasn't cynical in that kind of manipulative sense, but they were willing to buy into the system right. and do what it took. Interesting. And they also um, were hard workers. These were people who really made sure they did what they were supposed to do and worked hard. And in fact, we gave them at one point a uh, standardized achievement motivation instrument uh, survey and compared to national norms, they, they were a little higher on mastery, the motivation to master something and be interested in it. They were average on competition, not above average. Interesting. And they knocked the socks off the top of the work scale. Interesting. Huh. And, and they talked a lot about role models in their own families of what it meant to try your best and work hard. Yes. So let's stop for one minute and say, well, what do we have here? We have well-rounded, socially comfortable, socially adept people who work hard and do what they're supposed to do within a system. Right. Is that a bad thing? Is that what we should be rewarding in high school or not? It's a great question. Uh, You know, I I think as the listeners are, are kind of participating, listening in this conversation, I'd love for you to just kind of pause and and ask yourself um, that I think a society full of that would be a pretty good society, right? Assuming that we were working, that all those people were working in a system that we all felt comfortable with, right? Like they're not going to change the rules of the system. Is that, I mean, is that kind of what you're hinting at? You've got smiling eyes. (laughs) You've previewed where we're going, which is, okay, so Maybe the answer to that question can only be answered if you say, so what happened to them next? So what did happen to them next? Well, if you want, if you're a gambler, put your life savings on a high school valedictorian. Interesting. To go to college, to finish college, to get a graduate degree, to get a good job, to be uh, in a intimate partnership that's, that's stable, um, and to be a high achiever in recognized professions and kind of standard organizations. Okay. So given what I said about them in high school, this should be no surprise. Right. Salt of the earth teenagers, they're salt of the earth adults. If what you want out of the best out of schooling is people who are going to change the world. People who are going to be entrepreneurs. People who are going to think outside the box. People who are going to be eminent and change domains of human endeavor. Probably the valedictorian's not where to look. Interesting. Okay. This is big. I mean, this is probably not what, you know, I, I think if you had asked the peers of these kids back in 1981, as they're graduating, you know, who's the most likely to start a successful company, for example, or 
go invent some new new product or new like world changing innovation, probably fingers would have gone to this person. I mean, you would imagine, right? That's maybe common common intuition. I, I don't know that fingers would have gone toward the okay. value. Maybe not. Um, that that's somebody else's study. That would be worth doing. <laughs> um, but but if you start in the other direction and you look at a Elon Musk or a Bill Gates or right. um, or in fact you don't even have to do that anecdotally. There's research on giftedness and eminence and genius, and the profile of those people tends to be that they were very single-mindedly, even obsessively interested in a particular area. And so they, depending on their family and their personality, may or may not have made sure the angel food cake and home ec was perfect. Right. But it would be more likely that they got, you know, straight A's in all their science classes, or maybe even that they got bad grades in their science classes because they were out of school doing the science stuff. Um, but their profile would not be as even. The uh, comfort with bureaucracy and standardization in groups would be less. And they would really not have too much patience for yeah. some of the towing the line in conformity. And you're saying this diplomatically in a, in, a, in a way that's polite. But I mean, basically, they would raise their middle finger and say, I'm sorry, this is stupid. Like this assignment that you're giving me is like, I see no value to it. This class in general, I see no value to it. I mean, these are the people that really struggle, right? Because of course that's going to lead to poor grades. <laughs> if you end up with grades at all, right? You may just leave. Um, and, and all kinds of, you know, behaviors that are perceived at the time as, as risky or dangerous, or um, this is definitely outside of the kind of the standard track that I think we're all comfortable with. Right. Because obsessively interested, um, entrepreneurial, creative, anti-organization kind of people, that's the antithesis of a high school valedictorian. Very interesting. Okay. So then we get back to the same question. Are we doing the right thing in schools? And now it's kind of a values question. Right where you can say, well, should school be um, configured for that maverick, for that genius, for that unconventional, obsessively interested, single-minded person? Or should it be configured around the people who are going to be kind of at the center of your established organizations and systems? I'll let you answer. So you, that you didn't. You didn't solve. I'm waiting for you to like tell us the answer to that, Karen. Well, but no. All I can say is, we definitely don't want a system that smushes. <laughs> what's a good word for that? Right. The maverick. And right. I think we have that system. So you could almost say, and we'll we'll talk about how this has changed since 1981. But I I think most people would kind of intuitively say, based on their experience that it hasn't changed to the point where those people, a, a good example of this is Peter Thiel, who is a famous uh, investor and um, he, you know, worked on PayPal and made a lot of money. Palantir, he's, he's been very successful in the tech and entrepreneur world. He famously or infamously, depending on who you are, pays kids to drop out of college. He says, somebody bright that's capable of changing the world is wasting their time in college 
and I will pay you a certain number. It's a lot of money. It's like a hundred more thousand dollars to pull yourself out of college and go work on your idea. You're familiar with this. You're nodding your head. I mean, this is an example maybe of, of somebody who would say, you know, yeah, we're squashing them, right? Like the system's squashing them. Now, maybe some people would say that would create, it creates enough of an uncomfortableness to doing the crazy thing that like you have to be, it's almost like building a higher hedge around this maverick land, right? That you don't necessarily want to open that door wide open and say, hey, everybody come into maverick land. That, that could lead to every future father-in-law's worst nightmare in some ways, right? Right. So <laughs> um, I guess I don't think that we should build schooling around the, um, the maverick. But right. I also think that in general, there's a, a large group of students who are ready to do whatever we tell them we're, they're supposed to do. Yeah. And so if we set an achievement arena that asks them to conform rather than rewarding them to mm. think creatively, to, uh, that gives them an opportunity to explore and develop individual talents and pursuits, then I think that would be better for everybody. And I think we're going in the opposite direction with the high stakes testing and the increased uh, competition for highly selective colleges and universities. Right. So maybe another way to, to get into this is to think about those 81 that you studied who all had great lives, as you said. They have high probability of successful, both personal, personal, professional, financial. You know, they're okay. They're like good contributing members of society building a good, you said salt of the earth, you know, a good kind of social fabric. And maybe the question you're hinting at here is what could they have done, right? Maybe if we had made it a little more okay to take some risks and do things a little differently, they're clearly bright people. They were given a lot of gifts. Like maybe you're, it, it sounds like you're implying if we harnessed that, they could, they could potentially have created something new that, that none of us, you know, our, our lives would be better today as a result, or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe, but I honestly think these are the people who are going to um, probably not be the mold breakers. They're going to find us, find some system. Just give me a system and I'm going to work within your system. Right. And it's not a terrible system. Yeah. Um, oh, but I also do, I want to go way back and okay. say, not only were they not grinds, they weren't decimated by pressure or competition. I did have one, one valedictorian who really felt a lot of pressure and um, and was glad to escape after being valedictorian and went to community college and became a, um, a two-year associates level nurse. Uh -huh. Okay. He was the only one who said, oh my gosh, the pressure was relentless to get the good grades and be number one. For the rest of my students, um, they were mildly competitive as in they knew what rank they were and they made sure they, they did right. better than Kelly. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, but mostly they were, it was an outgrowth of liking school, um, liking learning, yeah. work hard, um, identifying with teachers. So they, they bought into the achievement, um, the achievement task. They wanted to do it. Yeah. And, and probably they didn't have something like 
Bill Gates had his, you know, coding that he was doing on the terminals after school, right? It, they didn't, they didn't have something like that, that made the rest of it seem silly. It was just like, at least for me, it was kind of like, well, this is what I do. I tried to conserve resources to get good grades and, you know, open up that possibility. But then all the rest of my time I spent playing sand volleyball and video games. And there you go. So you, you, you fit into my group. <laughs> I, w- I would also say that there's one other thing that valedictorians in my sample had, which is they were not, they didn't go off the rails as teenagers into partying and yeah. substance abuse. And I right. mean, they, they, they not only stayed focused on and valued the kind of mainstream achievement task that was set in front of them, they didn't get sidetracked by some of the ways that would have pushed them off the path. So I think getting to your question of anxiety and just to continue, and I'm I'm not trying to get free therapy here, Karen, so don't, um, (laughs) don't worry, but I want to like explore my own story. I think this is interesting Um, because for me, similarly, it wasn't too much pressure and that actually undergrad, I I studied physics at a decent university uh, and I got good grades there again was not too much pressure. And I graduated with that degree and I went to grad school. Like, I, like it sounds like you've said, a lot of people kind of follow the, so I was still on this and I felt it, right. I'm on this, um, this train or sort of this path. It wasn't a train cause it didn't do the work for me. Like I did work hard. And just like you said, I had, I knew I had to get my stuff done. I made sure to get my stuff done, but it led me to MIT and I ended up as a nuclear fusion, you know, researcher at MIT. I was doing a I thought I was going to do a PhD program. The first test that I took in magnetohydrodynamics at MIT, I got 13 points out of 30. So I, like, I didn't even know you could get that bad of an F. Like, I didn't know that was even possible. And I went through and I just was like, it felt like someone had just knocked the wind out of me. Because that never before had someone asked me to do something so hard that I, I clearly failed on it. You know what I mean? And at that point, it did start to get constrictive, right? So part of it, you know, it's interesting, your analysis of, um, of pressure and how you're feeling about the kind of the, the, the effects of being in this kind of competitive rank order system that came for me, but later. Um, and in fact, it's, this is tragic, but MIT has a lot of students that go off the rails. I mean, they're notorious for um, suicides, unfortunately, and things like that happen. Um, where people just get there and you're surrounded by the other valedictorians who are all in this mold of like, I'm going to be number one. Well, by definition, there's only one number one. And so the rest of you feel it. Yeah. I, I, we saw relatively little of that in our valedictorians. So they, um, so all but one of them graduated from college and that one. um, So a different arena here is when I looked at differences within my group of valedictorians, I am very sorry to report that their adult outcomes, although all perfectly respectable, um, that were divided by race, class, and gender. Wow. So um, an African-American student who, uh, Terry Denny began the study by going to all the commencements and hearing the valedictorian addresses. In 1981? Yep. So this study has been a long time coming. 
which was, well, I mean, I wrote the book in 95. It just keeps getting media attention. Yeah. Um, Because like I said, I'm the foremost and only expert. Um, (laughs) So so basically they were all pretty much a waste of time, except to develop rapport with the person who also couldn't believe that he'd been there at the graduations because they were some variation of, didn't we have a good time in, in high school and don't forget this and that. And thanks to our parents and we are the leaders of tomorrow. Done. Got it. Yeah. The standard speech. Right. So the, the guy who didn't finish college his um, his speech was astounding. Oh. African-American, inner-city Chicago school, and he stood in this giant conf- uh, convention hall as the valedictorian and said, before I start, I would like to ask you to look around. He said, wait, no, 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 you're not looking at the people who are here. Where are the 40% of us who were here first year of ninth grade and are not sitting here today? Whoa. Yeah, okay. I bet that was sobering. He gave an amazing speech. Yeah. Well, in unfortunately cliched terms, um, girlfriend got pregnant and he dropped out of school to support her and the baby. And um, but he then worked, went to work for UPS, and is so high up in the company. I bet he can buy and sell me. Right. So he's still successful. Interesting. But this is all kind of coming from your. What does it mean to be a big fish in a, a a uh, a small pond and then go to college and you're with your school of fish. Right. So, um, so the people who either struggled a little to finish college, which were very few or the one person who didn't, it had nothing to do with academics. Our students at that point on a four point scale, um, graduated with an average GPA of 3.7. Um, several of them finished college in three years they won every sort of honor that you can imagine. Yeah. At an interview question, their first year of college that says, is there life after the first B? And I think six of them never got to be in college. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so whatever it means to be good in school, they really were good. Right. Yeah. They, they knew how to do that. But what we found with, um, Gender, and this actually got a lot of publicity at the point that we were writing about the study, Uh is um, we asked them every year, how intelligent do you think you are compared to other people your age? And we would have expected that to go down for everybody in the first year of college because you're now with people who are just as smart and academically able as you. Well, it went down for the women substantially but not for the men. Interesting. We'll talk about that. What, I mean, what's going on there? And it continued to go down through the four years of college, even though women did every bit as well academically as the men at comparably selective colleges. So there, it's not that they were performing any differently. Right. It's just these men had in their heads a different self-image, basically, that didn't seem to be... Right. And the big fish in the small pond thing doesn't work or that now you're a small fish in a big pond because that should have happened to everybody. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So, so what is happening? And, and the answer, there are a couple different answers. And this is one thing that you and your listeners can think about too, because um, there's not a correct answer. But my answer is based on that finding plus 
um, the finding that a group of women, but almost no men, changed their majors away from demanding male-dominated areas, mostly in science and pre-med and stuff, to more um, conventionally female-dominated areas like physical therapy or um, nursing. And they did so explicitly saying, I want a career where I can um, combine career and family ah. more easily than I think I can in these male-dominated, really high-status positions. So even age 21 or younger, even age 20, 19. 19. So you're 19 years old, you're saying... Right. I, you don't have a boyfriend, you're, you don't have, you're not married, you don't have any children, and... Um, this is interesting. You are contingency planning for a future in which you're trying to imagine how nuclear engineering yeah. is going to fit with the kind of family you want. That's fascinating. So, so one of my theories is that the achievement task in high school is unambiguous. Get good grades, get to a good college. Right. The achievement task in college is more ambiguous. Prepare for your future. Ah. And when your future means potential, you have to decide how, what roles and how they're going to be combined if you're a woman. And if you're a man, you just, they yeah. wanted to get married and have children too, but they just assumed they'd fit that in around whatever they were right. going to do. So interesting. So, okay, this has nothing to do, basically what you're saying is if these girls graduating high school decided that I want to go be an engineer or a computer programmer or a rocket scientist or a CEO or some of the things that traditionally are underrepresented, they totally could do that. And that they would succeed in at least 50% and probably more cases. The question is more of they just don't want that. They see what that means for their life. Or, or they don't want it if it means the sacrifices. having it at the cost of what of how they conceptualize having a family. And I wish this were something that I could say, oh, my group was 20 years ago. Today's women wouldn't do it's that. But there's, there's some evidence that that's not interesting. Interesting. So, so one theory of why they lowered their intellectual self-esteem is that suddenly they were not at the top of the achievement arena that counted the new one that had to do with, I'm going to be a career star. Right. It's a new okay. game. And the, the rules of this new game are different. I'm not going to play in that new game because of other priorities. And as a result, right. I start to think, well, I'm just not, I'm not. All right. So there, there are other possible explanations, though. Can, you, so, can we just pause real quick, though? Yeah. I just, what percentage of the 81 were female? Um, about half. Just roughly half. So it's not like, it's not like you're already this small segment. It's like, just as likely, because you, you didn't select by gender to try to, Get half. Or no, we did. select by by high school. Yeah, so you just went to schools. You're basically yeah. like you're equally likely as a male or female to be the one that succeeds well, actually, at game A. Women are or maybe girls, slightly girls. Girls get better grades than boys. <laughs> um, okay. K twelve and are more likely to be high school valedictorian. So I, um, I wanted to throw that out just in case someone's listening and, and thinking, oh, well, maybe there's a competency question or a. I mean, there was this famous thing while I was at MIT where Larry Summers had made some comments oh, and it yeah. sort of exploded all, I mean, the whole discussion. Um, but it's just pretty clearly like this is not about 
potential ability or like intellectual like limits right. or anything. The women like. earned equal grades or actually slightly higher yeah. grade than the men. And none of them changed their major because they weren't doing well academically. It's not like, oh, I tried nuclear and I just couldn't do it. It's like, I tried nuclear, I got to meet some nuclear engineers and I was like, that's not the life I want. Right. Or yeah. um, one, one of our valedictorians was a chemical engineer. Yeah. And um, not particularly laudably, she had chosen chemical engineering because um, she saw a chart of starting salaries and it was the highest. <laughs> I think it still is. It's up there. Some of and my she, friends from chemical. She said yeah. to us in college, she says, I'm doing fine in chemical engineering and anything and everything, but I just kind of can't even imagine myself as a middle-aged woman chemical engineer. That just doesn't even... Interesting. Compete. So interesting. Okay. So, so let's get to the other, the other possibility. So the, the second possibility is that something's going on that's disadvantaging them in, in college. And I was... <laughs> minding my own business one morning in my house and the phone rang and it was Gloria Steinem. And Gloria Steinem said, well, I've been reading in the media about this finding about lowering self-esteem of women high school valedictorians in the absence of any evidence that they weren't doing well. She says, and I think this shows that they're not getting what they need in college, that there's not enough female role models, that they feel alienated in male-dominated um, classrooms, that right. they're not getting mentors, and all of that is possible. One more. Okay. So then Gloria Steinem wrote about this in one of her books. Maybe it's called The Revolution Within Something. And I got an email from one of the valedictorians in my study who posited a third okay. explanation. This is fascinating. She says, so I've been reading about what Gloria Steinem said and how she thinks we're all discriminated against. And this was by the way, a woman who at that point was in a PhD program in chemistry. Okay. So she did not follow this route. Right. She says, I take strong exception to both your theory and Gloria Steinem's. She says, I think it's because certainly by the time I got into college and um, or left college and probably when I was at the end of my freshman or sophomore year, that my view of what it means to be intelligent had changed. When uh. I was in high school, I thought it was just about being book smart and getting good grades. It's like one dimensional. Now I see that there are all sorts of different ways of being intelligent. This is only one of them. Mm. And frankly, I don't think it's a problem that women went down. I think it's a problem that men didn't. <laughs> this is great. So I wanted to kind of loop back and, and talk about this potential mismatch. I mean, you hear the word mismatch when I talk to parents and people who are trying to innovate in education. They say, you know, we're preparing them to take standardized tests and maybe we're preparing them to get a diploma and Maybe we're preparing them to start college and maybe we're even preparing them to finish college. But a lot of people have, have gotten to this point of we're not preparing them for life. It's this artificial thing that we're, we're sort of setting them up to do well in this artificial thing. And maybe there was a time and, you know, the, they talk about the baby boomers, you know, going to work and staying with one company and kind of climbing the ladder. And maybe that felt like a continuation of what they did in undergrad or something like that. But it's clearly not the case anymore. Um, Reed Hoffman has a book. This is the guy that started LinkedIn called The Startup of You. And he, his analogy is really striking. 
um, where he talks about an escalator. You know, I think that's, that's this one dimensional game, right? You, you get on and you sort of start down this, this one dimensional journey. And he says that used to be true career wise. And it's just patently not true now that he says the escalator is jammed. So imagine all these people kind of crowding onto an escalator and you start to talk about things like uh, student debt, you know, and, and, and racking up a lot of expense and owing money for the rest of your life and never getting, you know, not getting a job at all even, or getting a job that's not going to let you pay back that debt. So those are some symptoms that I think people would point to, to say, we've got this mismatch, like what's going on. And I'd love to just hear your thoughts kind of, as we wrap this up about, you know, is, is there a mismatch? Um, You know, this, this PhD student that called you on the phone, sounds like she was enlightened, right? She's, she saw what maybe everybody needs to see, which is that um, life is nuanced and it's, it's complicated and there's lots of ways to, to do your thing. People are different and nuanced and, and therefore maybe it shouldn't be so one dimensional. I mean, is that something that, that is fair to take away from all of this? It's a big topic, um, but I think in general, higher education is extremely stratified um, both in um, kind of selectivity and prestige, but also in the nature of the education and the experience that people have. And I think, and there's a lot of research to back it up, that the traditional four-year residential liberal arts experience with close relationships between faculty and students, not particularly directly vocationally oriented, um, and a lot of opportunity to write and to get feedback, and a lot of opportunity to engage with interesting peers in and outside of the classroom, is a beautiful Uh, way to prepare people for a life of continued learning and adaptation and flexibility and critical thinking. The crime is that such a small percentage of our college students are getting that experience. It's very expensive and the preparation and negotiation to get in and through those places is not equitably distributed, to say the least. Interesting. So to the extent that low-income and first-generation students and older students are part-time, they're commuting, they're working, and they're so vocationally oriented that the um, curriculum and the experience is rather impersonal and... close-ended right um that that desperately needs we need to figure a way to scale up a liberal arts residential experience in the real reality that that cannot be affordable and realistic for a good portion probably the majority of students who should get a higher education Fascinating. I'm, I'm working on elementary school right now, but hopefully someday I'll get to solve this problem. <laughs> well, Karen, thank you so much for joining. And this has been fa- a great conversation. I, I want to just give listeners a chance to look you up. I mean, if you Google Karen Arnold, Boston College, you'll probably find her. But 
is there a specific book or article you think they should start with as they kind of approach your your work about valedictorians? Um, well, the book is um, what's it called? Lives of Promise. Lives of um, Promise. What becomes of high school valedictorians? I think and it's funny that of, you weren't sure the title of your your own book. It, it's it's been a while. <laughs> Um, but I was not pleased with the last round of media that basically um, said valedictorians don't amount to anything. That is completely right. wrong. Right. They do, but they're kind of the best of your standard achievers. Right. And I actually was backpacking on the Appalachian Trail when all that happened, and so I didn't get any chance to weigh in. Um, I came back and my email and my phone were full of requests for interviews, but I've been about as off the grid as a modern American can get. So Excellent. I, well, I'm sure some of your valedictorians wanted to talk after seeing that. In the yeah, headline. really. <laughs> now, what do you mean I don't amount to anything? Well, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's a different yeah. approach to life. You know, the rest of, and I know we're, we're towards the end here, but the rest of my story is, is interesting because I followed the same trajectory, right? I got one high paying job after another. I was successful in engineering and then transferred into kind of the business world and worked for good businesses. I worked for small and large, but exciting. They were good jobs. They paid well. And then uh, a few years ago, I started as a volunteer, just teaching kids computer programming um, at the library, at the public library. And I was excited about the equity of it and the sort of the opportunity and the access. And it was a very much meant to be a side project, uh, which four years later, you know, here I am uh, running a business, uh, a social enterprise that's all about kind of rethinking, not just the way kids learn tech skills like coding, but thinking how do they learn period, right? Because I saw so much of the, so much of, of the assumptions that they get about themselves is inadvertently happening, you know, through the, the constraints that, that we build around them. So it's kind of comes full circle for me. And now here I am with, you know, very little salary and I've, I've gone crazy and, and by basically any objective standard, including my wife's, but here, you know, here we are trying to um, do the things that maybe I would have had the guts to do 20 years ago if, if I hadn't been so worried about getting grades in high school. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> so you're like a recovering salutatorian. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. Um, Karen Arnold, thank you so much for the time and really appreciate your insight. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Prenda Podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this conversation or innovating in education. And if you want to follow my progress designing a new model for school, you can learn more at school.prenda.co.